Good morning. It's so wonderful to see you all as we continue this series. We're looking at the world mission of the church. I think this is uh, part seven. If you are graduating, I'm sorry, because this series will go on in the fall. But it's, it's actually, think about the new students who will come next September, and I'll start out on part eight. Uh, but that's the way it goes at Asbury. <laughs> People mark their time here by what part of my series I'm in. But uh, it's great to be a part of this series. And um, I, one of the, this particular section of this series, we're looking particularly at the final commissions of our Lord Jesus Christ as the post-resurrection risen Lord. One of the themes that we've seen unfolding is that Christ uh, gave multiple commissions in multiple locations uh, throughout the gospel accounts. As you may recall, we have uh, 11 uh, perhaps more, but for sure 11 different post-resurrection appearances of Christ. Uh, and I guess here we are in Eastertide. That's maybe worth remembering those. Uh, Christ appeared to Mary Magdalene. Christ appeared to Mary, uh, Joanna, and uh, Salome. Christ appeared to Simon Peter, Paul tells us. Uh, Christ appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. Christ appeared to the ten disciples uh, without Thomas. And he appeared ten disciples with Thomas. He appeared to the disciples as they were fishing on Galilee. He appeared to the 500 on the mountain in Galilee. Uh, he appeared to James. He appeared at the Ascension in Acts 1-8, we just read. And he appeared, if you'll count this one, Paul on the road to Damascus. So one of the things about the force of all of these post-resurrection appearances is that Christ, on several occasions, gave very different and distinct uh, commissionings to the church. And one of the things that we as seminarians have to do is to remember, to remind the church, we shouldn't squish it all down into one command. What we have is a number, a series of things that actually opens up the the work of God in the world, His mission in the world through His church, to very different kinds of ministries. So we saw, for example, in Matthew's gospel, the command to disciple nations, in Mark to preach the gospel to all creation. Here in Luke we'll see the ministry of witnessing, and then in John later, we'll see the uh, sending. That'll be in next fall. Okay, so in Luke's gospel, before we come to the passages before us, I want us to, again, as we did before in the other gospels, we need to realize that the Great Commission in Luke's gospel does not, is not tacked on. Another one of the mistake, mistakes we make is thinking that these texts kind of just get tacked on to the end. Well, now that he's arisen, the Lord, then he tells us something. But we've had a lot of cues all along the way, that this is actually part of God's unfolding plan. Now Luke, uh, for example, gives us uh, Simeon uh, and the wonderful account where Simeon uh, gives this prophecy right at the beginning of Christ's birth. And there is a a youngster, as Simeon says, among other things, he claims that this this Messiah, this uh, child, will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Right. At the outset, we hear that. You have Luke, who, though the other Gospels do have the quotation from Isaiah 40 about, uh, you know, light, a, a voice crying in the wilderness, it is actually Luke that goes on and quotes the whole Isaiah passage. Every valley be lifted up, you know, the rough places smooth, the crooked places start, and all flesh or all mankind will see the glory of the Lord or see God's salvation. So here again, this Isaiah's vision, which we one of our parts with several parts of looking at Isaiah's great global vision, that gets brought up into the Gospel of Luke. 
Uh, Luke also does something that's very interesting because you may remember that all the synoptics all give us a, a commissioning, kind of mid-gospel of the 12 disciples. So you find this in Mark, Matthew 10, Mark 6, and Luke 9, where the 12 are sent out. And everybody understands the 12 is symbolic of the tribes of Israel. This is like the new Israel going out. We, we understand all of that. But Luke is the only one that gives us a second commissioning in the middle of the gospel where he sends out 70. Or is it 72? Okay, this is one of those moments where, I don't know, you guys, the faculty, are there moments where you're like, oh no, a textual discrepancy. There's times like, praise God for a textual discrepancy. This is one of those moments. This is one of those moments where you really, this is actually not really a discrepancy we'll see, but you'll notice in the text in Luke 10, you'll see a little footnote there. Some manuscripts say he sent 72, some say 70. But what's so interesting about that is like, why, why, why 70 or 72? What's the point of that? We all get that the number 12 is symbolic. What about 70? Well, think about it. 70, of course, it goes back to Genesis 10. Now, if you remember in Genesis 10, after the, the flood, they give there this wonderful chapter of this called the Table of the Nations. I'm sure all of you have memorized it. It's a long list of all the nations of the world. It's, again, sort of a symbolic account, but it's basically saying this is representative of the nations of the world, this, the new, kind of new, new creation after, after Noah. Well, if you read the Hebrew text of that passage, Genesis 10, it's 70. There's a slightly different word order, the word division in the Septuagint, and Septuagint 72. So the very fact that the text has a 70 or 72 actually proves helps to prove at least that they are thinking about this is connected to Genesis 10. Why is that important? What it means is that this is just as important as the 12. This is symbolic of the mission to the nations, mission to the Gentiles. Luke is the only one that gives us that amazing moment in the, in the uh, Gospels. Now, the number of texts where Matthew and Luke share and show God's heart for the Gentiles that we saw earlier, the faith of the centurion, uh, the Ninevites being judged more favorably than the, the Jews or the Gentiles coming from north, south, east, and west and sitting down at table with Abraham. All of those things are shared with Matthew. But Luke gives us a whole range of texts only found in Luke that are peculiar to this point that God is breaking into the Gentile world. God is raising up faith in the Gentile world. This is our future he's talking about. The faith of Naaman the Syrian is lifted up. The widow of Zarephath lifted up. The good Samaritan lifted up. The wedding banquet with the second call to those who are uninvited. And of course, the ten lepers where one comes back and it was a Samaritan. All those texts are found in Luke's gospel. And also he mentions, Luke's the only one that mentions that the time between the two comings of Christ is known as the time of the Gentiles, a phrase unique to Luke. So when we get to Luke 24, there's a lot of preparation has brought us to this point. And we have this amazing account where Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. This is like a, one of our favorite accounts, right? Here we are after resurrection. These two disciples are plunging along, one named Cleopas. So they're trudging along. They're sad. They're downcast. And there it is. Jesus comes and walks among them. That's a pretty um, remarkable event. And the text says something that's maybe quite surprising. 
their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Think about that. I mean, think about it. our whole mentality is about how you know access. You know, everybody can get it. Uh, here's this amazing statement: their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, this is one of those themes in the Gospels that we need to remember, especially our generation, that the revelation of the Gospel is a divine act. Remember, remember Mark 16, I mean, I'm sorry, Matthew 16, 17, where when Peter makes a declaration, um, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That did not come to him as the result of a marketing campaign. It didn't come because somebody, you know, created a market share to increase knowledge of Christ and happened and engulfed Peter that day. It, Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Now, that's a really important reminder to us as the church, as we go out into the world. The revelation of the gospel is a divine act. We are participants in a divine act. And in some ways, it's a, it's a nice reminder in the midst of all of the ways that the, the, even the gospel has become a commodity in our day. So it's like, you know, Michelob is upset because the latest, you know, Lexington brew is squeezing out people drinking Michelob. And so they figure out a campaign to increase Michelob share. That's a very bad analogy for Asbury. Um, <laughs> let's go to Sealy Mattresses. Um, you know, against the light, the cheapest uh, mattress or whatever. I mean, there's a thousand examples of this. It's every commercial. It's every billboard. It's everything. And in five minutes, you think, oh, my goodness, the church is the same way. You know, the, the Methodists are losing market share over the last 50 years. Really? Maybe it's something deeper than that. Okay, then they have the experience. We won't go into all the details, but as you know, they go into the, to the event. They, they, they don't recognize him. And he gives them the entire series of Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament. They still don't recognize him. Later in John, you'll remember that Mary Magdalene recognizes him with one word. He says, Mary. And she recognizes him with one word. Here are many, many words. They don't recognize him, but they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. Some people recognize Christ in words, some in deeds. And when the, when the bread was broken, he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And it says, then their eyes were opened. That's a very, very important word there. Uh, Dianoigo, Dianoigo, opened. It's a very, very important word. Their eyes were opened. All right? God did it. God, again, it's the same point. Once again, their eyes are opened to hear the gospel. This actually is a word that appears very few times. Uh, later we'll see it appears to disciples again when he opens their minds to hear the gospel in, the, in our text today. And later it happens in Acts 17 with Lydia. He opened her hearts. Now, so three times that word is used in Luke's gospel. One is he opened their eyes. One, he opened their minds. And the third, he opened her heart. Your eyes, your mind, and your heart. God's in charge of opening all of it. We often think it's just the heart. It's the whole thing. He's in charge of opening things and bringing us into this. I had the privilege of being, if you ever get to go to Philippi, uh, to they, they have a traditional place right outside the city where you can go and sit on, on the bank of the river 
uh, right where they believed they was once a place of prayer. Remember in Acts 17, Paul goes out to Philippi, north of the city, on the banks, and he sat there, and he talks to Lydia. I remember he had the vision of the Macedonian man, and he goes across there, and he meets a woman named Lydia. And that's the first person to come to Christ in all of Europe, is dear Lydia. And it happens, and it says, as Paul shared the gospel with her, that's our part, the Lord opened her heart. It's a great, great insight into the synergistic work that we're in. We, we do our part. We have a lot of work to do, but God does what only he can do. So this happens. Uh, they're, 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 their eyes are opened. Well, then we come to uh, our passage today. And when they come to the passage, uh, they, they, they rush back, of course, uh, to Jerusalem to tell the disciples what happened. Uh, this is the fastest trip to Emmaus and back. They, they get there. And they, uh, uh, they're sharing the news, and suddenly Christ comes in, and he speaks to them. He says to them, Shalom alaikum, uh, peace be unto you. They, they, they eat, he eats in their presence. All right, so there's this roll of fish proving this is not like a, like a vision or some kind of ghost or whatever. And then we have the Great Commission in Luke's Gospel, and it's so different than anything we've encountered so far. It begins by saying, then he opened their minds. There's that word again, the anoigo, same word used with the road to Emmaus. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. There's no reference here to going and doing anything. Okay, none of this go into all the world, preach the gospel, no go and make disciples of all nations. That's not what we have here. He said to them, Thus it is written, the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins, we preach in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. So what we really see is, oh my goodness, God was doing this all along. This was God's plan. This is what is written. So what it's saying is, is that you're not starting this. It's not like we all started the Kiwanis Club. You know, wow, this is great. Let's start something. Let's start the church. This is not, the church is not on that plane. Nothing against the Qantas Club, by the way. Or any other kind of club. You know, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, name it. Those are things that we start for all kinds of good reasons. That is not what happens in the Gospels. This is written that this Gospel would be preached and proclaimed to all nations and be gathering from all the nations. It goes back to Genesis 12, verse 3. God is unfolding His plan. This is the one great commission that clearly lays out the, the content of the gospel message. Repentance and forgiveness of sins, we preach his name to all nations. Amazing, amazing. So we're now part of this great work of God in the world. And we now, now we've seen how every text, every one of these commissions, really highlights a different word. Remember when Matthew was discipling, when Mark was proclaiming, here he used the word, Martha'o, you are witnesses of these things. Witnesses. A witness, someone who tells what they have seen and heard, right? That's what people do. Go before a court, you're a witness. You tell what you've seen or heard. You bear witness. You lay your life out to witness to things. You lay it out. They bear witness to the gospel. It's actually, we are bearing witness to what God is doing in the world. It's his work unfolding. We bear witness of that work. 
Now, if you go and look, and this is where I think it's really important. I'm speaking to a group of people where probably a large percentage of you feel called by God to proclaim the gospel, which means for many of you, uh, what I would call formal proclamation settings of the gospel. So we, we think about like pulpits like this and in churches across the world. And so you will be a pastor, for example, and many of you will have opportunities to get up in a pulpit and preach the gospel, which is wonderful. It's one of the greatest privileges in the world. But one thing that's important for us to recognize is the gospel has to be bared. The witness of the gospel happens in many, many, many ways. And that, of course, is an important way. It's a crucial way. We have to get that right. But there are thousands of ways that we bear witness to the gospel. And part of your role as a, as a minister of the gospel is to unleash that in the lives of your, of your people that God has given you care for in your flock. And a lot of people think that the, the, the pastor is the professional Christian and that your job is to do it all. That is not right. Your job is to equip the ministry and release that ministry. Now, when you read the book of Acts and, and all throughout the New Testament, you, we find there are about 15 words that describe like, ways in which the gospel is communicated. Let me just share five or six of these with you, just because I think it's helpful. In Acts 9.20, when Paul goes into the synagogue, we're told he, Caruso, he proclaims the gospel to them. I mean, this is, I'm giving the NIV translation here. In Acts uh, uh, 17.2, 17.3, again, he meets with, uh, this is in Thessalonica, and he, uh, Dianoigo, he, you already know that word, he opened the gospel to them, he explained it to them. Okay, fine. In Acts 17.23, we're told, he, this is when he's at the Areopagus, he, Katangalo, he announces the gospel to them. Okay, it's another word. So we have proclaiming, opening, announcing. In Acts 20, verse 27, Anangalo, he declares, this is the word for when he gives his farewell to the Ephesians elders. Then you go down to Colossians 4.3, he has this prayer, please pray that God would open a door for me that I might laleo, Share the gospel, speak the gospel, talk the gospel. And then you have Revelation 14, 6, the angel flying overhead, uh, evangelizo, the good news, evangelizing the good news to the world. Now, what's so interesting about those words? Now, we looked at a lot of words, Caruso, Dinoigo, Catangolo, Anagolo, Laleo, evangelizo. In the NIV, all six of those words in all those texts are translated proclaim, 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 proclaim. In the in the earlier version of NIV. Now what, and this is not like to get into all of the reasons why, but the point is, if you're reading the Bible, there is at times a a bias that tends to make you think that the only way anybody ever shares the gospel is in formal proclamation events, right? So rather than saying somebody shared the gospel, there's many places you could say he shared it, he talked it, he told it. He, you know, is Paul in the, in the, when Paul is talking to the elders in, in Ephesus in that very, very powerful moment where he gives them that final kind of talking to, is it really a proclamation event? You see, we really have a lot of work to do to recognize the full vocabulary in the New Testament about what is meant 
for to equip the whole people of God. One of our uh, trustees, uh, Dale Ditto, his wife, I mean, his mother, Fran, lives over here in Wesley Village, and they, the, the Fran Ditto, they, she has four sons, one of whom is our, one of our trustees. Well, if you ever go to Wesley Village, you need to meet Fran Ditto. She's a wonderful saint of God. But if you go and talk to her, ask her what her four boys do. Like one's an eye doctor, one's, I think, a pastor, one's a financial manager. I'm not sure what the fourth one is, but they're, they're all in all kinds of professions. And if you ask her, she'll say, my four boys are all in the ministry. It's a great word of wisdom. And they are. They all, they all see their work as an act of ministry, of expression of ministry. They are communicating. They're bearing witness to the gospel in all that they do. I'm going to close with this story from our work in India. When we worked in North India, uh, we, there was a big region that had no churches ever in the history of the world where we were going. There had never been any uh, really significant work. We found out at one time a, like a YWAM team had kind of crossed through that district and gotten you know, beaten on the way out, and they passed out a few tracks. But there, was, there never had been any sustained gospel work in that part of North India. This is a place called Nirnanagar. So, and we've used this strategy, by the way, many, many times uh, since then. But when we first went up there, we realized at some point that there was no possible way we could start any church there. We could not plant a church. Our whole mission in North India was to plant churches among mostly Hindu peoples of North India and bring them to faith in Christ. So we had, this was entirely 99.9% Hindu area, no gospel uh, witness at all. But there's no way they would ever permit any kind of proclamation of the gospel in any kind of formal way that we would think of. There's no way you could start a meeting in a church or, or build a church or, or have a gathering in a home. None of those things were possible. Absolutely impossible. So what do we do? Do we just leave and say, well, okay. No, we don't. We're, we're, we're committed. We remember Luke. You're my witnesses. doesn't happen to happen in a, in a formal proclamation event. So we ask the second question. Okay, in this part of India, you cannot go there as a pastor or a preacher or an evangelist or anything like that. Any kind of official Christian witness is not allowed in that part of North India. This is where they have the, the Kali worship in North India. It's, they won't let anybody outsiders there. Well, the one thing that we all knew for years working in India is that Indians, they highly value education. Education is extremely important to the Indian families uh, beyond anything we can imagine. I mean, it's unbelievable how they will sacrifice everything for the sake of the education of their children. It's amazing their commitment to education. And if you go into the schools there, I mean, these children are, you know, they're in uniforms. I mean, even the smallest village puts a disproportionate amount of resources into educating children. Well, this place had uh, schools, but they were, they were not. This is a very mountainous, very impoverished region. And we said, we'd like to come here and start a school. They were like, oh, would you do that? We'd be so happy. Because Indians, even if they absolutely do not like the gospel, they reject the gospel, they really value education, and they particularly value Christian education. If you open a Sunday paper in India, 
and you want to read the matrimonial page. That in India, you've arranged marriages, and so people are trying to find links, and this happens today through the internet and through the newspaper, et cetera. They will, one of the famous lines in this is, now these are Hindus seeking to find partners for their, their children. They will say, convent educated, which is a code word for Christian education. Even our schools, they call them convents, okay, because they first met education through Roman Catholics, and then eventually they just call everything as a convent. In the Malayalam language of India, one of the languages of India, the word for school is the building next door to the church. That's what it means, the building, because that's what they, they, they came to the church, they had schools, all right? That, people have that connection. So when we said we are Christians, we want to start a Christian school there, they were delighted. This is the group that would never let me say five minutes of gospel presentation in that village or anybody else. So we started a school there. It's now a large school with probably, I don't know, now we're probably 400 children in that school. And we have branches of, the, of, of that school. And other, we have two branches from that school. Well, so it, it's many, many children. And they're growing up. They're learning Christian songs. They're memorizing verses. It's a, it's a full-throated Christian school, along with, their, along with the best science program in that part of India, along with the best math program. And we have math teachers, science teachers. Our seminary in North India, where I taught, has a what's called double-degree program where you get a train in theology and in some secular uh, subject like math or science or whatever through the University of uh, Indira Gandhi University. We have an agreement so you can graduate dual-prepared because in India you have to be dual-prepared. And so some of my students who came through our program and, and uh, you know, Bible program, they're also teaching math. They're teaching science. And these children, which, you know, they were just five years old and up, they're going to grow up. They'll someday be the leaders in that village. And guess what? They'll someday invite us to plant churches. This is a multi-generational strategy. And sometimes you have to do that. I think a lot of our, the, the influence of marketing in the church today is basically designed to do this on Tuesday so that next Thursday you'll have this or that result. And some of the work that we need is the long kind of standing work that recognizes this is God's work. We don't have to press it. Just be faithful in it and use the gifts God's given to you. There are literally hundreds of gifts in your church that you'll someday pastor that are going untapped for the gospel. Now I want to hand it to the Chinese uh, and the Koreans, especially those two groups. And by the way, what happens in China is like really important for the future of the church. There's like 1.4 billion of you you know, when you pass the billion mark, you better take notice. I mean, it's amazing. One-third of the world are either Chinese or Indians. Think about it. Two countries have a third of the world. And the Chinese Christians have learned to show up all over the world doing a lot of different things. They are great at it. They show up doing opening businesses, doing this, doing that. Uh, they're they're self-supporting because of that. I mean, the, the whole way they plant churches is completely different than how we think about church planting because they understand this passage, actually. Importance of just bearing witness. 
The whole Moravian movement happened with lay people just out there with jobs doing ministry, the entire Moravian missionary movement. So all of this is closed by saying that Luke's gospel gives us a wonderful insight and a wonderful word we cannot forget, the role of bearing witness and remembering that the work that we're involved in is not our work, it's his work, and he's gracious enough to include us in on it. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful truth that our eyes, our hearts, our minds have been opened by the wonderful work of God in Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. Lord, help us this day to recognize how you might be using us. We have counselors here, people studying counseling. We have people preparing to be teachers and pastors We have all kinds of gifts that we'll meet in our ministries. May each of them be called into your full-time service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.